This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 70, Epidemics, Part 1. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. I wish I could take credit for planning this episode topic to coincide so well with the world's current news stories, but the truth is, I'm just not that organized. One of my favorite history podcasts called Backstory actually does this with each of their episodes, so maybe it's a little bit of unconscious inspiration. Either way, as the world watches news about the coronavirus, what better time to learn about historical outbreaks and how Atlanta dealt with each of them? This is just part one because, just like today, the press love discussing the spread of disease, sensationalizing rumors and fear were used just as freely 200 years ago as they were today. An epidemic is defined as something that affects a disproportionate number of people within a population, community, or region at the same time. Diseases like smallpox, cholera, typhoid, influenza, polio, and HIV, just to name a few, have each had their moment in history. So this week, I want to cover the city of Atlanta's response, reaction, and how wealth, race, and gender played a role, because they always do. We're going to start with yellow fever, which is a virus that spreads through mosquito bites and can produce fever, chills, headaches, and body aches. It's not always fatal, but the symptoms can lead to more serious issues that can cause death. In the early 19th century, yellow fever is even deadlier because we're dealing with the lack of medicine and scientific knowledge that we have today. It's mainly associated with tropical climates and cities that are at or below sea level. Basically, Atlanta never saw yellow fever as a threat. But surprisingly, it did good things for the city. And you might be wondering how. Well, cities that were not affected by yellow fever epidemics, there was very much this unspoken contest to see who raised more donations for the cause. In 1876, yellow fever came to Savannah, and in 1878, the newspapers here blast Atlantans for not leading the way in donations and urging them to match the $8,000 that was raised the year prior. And not that there wasn't altruism involved, but in the true Atlanta way, it was more about appearing at the top of that donation list. The city also sees a boom in tourism, as everyone who can is escaping sea-level coastal cities and booking their hotels and boarding houses here in Atlanta. We become refuge for anyone who can leave those affected areas, and the newspaper reports from these times are just Atlanta writing love letters to itself. How blessed we are to be a thousand feet above sea level, and quote, cost of living is cheaper, accommodations are ample and first class, citizens are clever, hospitable, and generous, end quote. By October, we have coined ourselves a health resort. There's even a great story about military troops that had escaped yellow fever in New Orleans, and then they just keep hop, like, hopping from city to city, escaping it, and they find themselves finally camping on Pryor Street in downtown Atlanta. Now, thankfully, they also have a military band with them, and they start giving free public concerts. Next up is smallpox. The symptoms of smallpox are horrific. We're talking pus-filled skin lesions all over the body that can result in death if you're not vaccinated. The first mentions of smallpox in the state of Georgia are from the colonial period, when the disease ravages the state's Native American population, killing entire tribes. 
The first public health law in the state of Georgia was actually created in 1760, and it was called the Smallpox Scourge Quarantine Law. So Savannah, being a port city, was extremely susceptible to what was coming in via ships, whether it's carried by people or animals. And the people of Savannah are actually so paranoid about smallpox that in 1768, the Georgia General Assembly passes a law prohibiting the inoculation of smallpox. You heard me. Think of them like the anti-vaxxers of the 18th century. With little scientific knowledge, they wrongly believed that being exposed to any version of smallpox was too risky. Ironically, centuries later, smallpox would be eradicated with a vaccine. Smallpox was an issue in Atlanta in 1865 and 1866. However, there are not many surviving newspapers from that time, so we don't know a whole bunch of details about that initial outbreak. In 1869, there are reports of two boys in Henry County who died of smallpox. Seven years later, it appears again in Savannah. And if you look at national news around this time, smallpox is prevalent in northern cities um, because of the influx of immigrants from all over the world. And you can see it making its way south. By 1881 in Atlanta, the city council invites the Board of Health to present their findings about the epidemic. And they warn that we need to be vigilant. Smallpox has now come as far south as Virginia. And although we have nothing in Atlanta, our railroads bring in thousands of visitors. And they ask the city council to provide $1,000 so they can vaccinate the poor. The following year, smallpox makes its way to Chattanooga, just over the Georgia state line. A central vaccination office is created in Atlanta, and it's housed over Keeley's store on Whitehall Street. At first, it would serve both black and white citizens, but then the decision was made to split the races. So the white office was made inside a courtroom in City Hall, and then the office above the store becomes black only. Both offices, however, are run by the same white physician, Dr. Cummings. In January of 1882, Dr. Cummings was interviewed by a reporter on the preparedness of the city against this potential smallpox. So at first, the article is just really reassuring the public. There's no cases yet. You know, we're getting ready. The doctor shares that they're vaccinating 800 to 1,000 people every single week. What I really give Dr. Cumming credit for is that he shuts down the reporter when he tries to ask a leading question. So the reporter's like, well, you know, it's definitely coming from poor people. It's definitely coming from black people. And Dr. Cummings is like, listen, wealthy white people of Atlanta, you need to get vaccinated. You're not immune. You could have visitors or family coming from a northern city and easily make contact and spread smallpox to others. A pest house has been erected at the site of the future city stockade or jail. So I mentioned this briefly in the Behind Bars episode, but it's over on Glenwood Avenue. And the word pest house um, seems strange, but we're not talking about insects. We're talking pestilence. So it is a place to house sick people so they can be quarantined until they get better. In April, the city's worst fears come true, and a red flag is waving outside of Beaver Slide with a sign saying, smallpox, stay out. I spoke a lot about slums in the housing projects episode, but in early Atlanta, Beaver Slide was described as being behind the Willingham House and fronting Ivy Street. And the Willingham House is its own rabbit hole. I'm trying to understand it and research it, but it was definitely like a hotel or boarding house that had really seedy element. In Beaver Slide, aside from the shoddy, almost temporary structures, at night, 
black men without homes would gather there to sleep. Myra Louisa Tate, a 14-year-old African-American resident of Beaverslide, was the first to have smallpox in Atlanta. She was misdiagnosed with measles by a white doctor, and a newly graduated black doctor correctly determined she had smallpox. She is brought to the pest house, and the buildings of Beaverslide are demolished, burned, and a sign is put up telling everyone to keep out. A police officer is stationed outside, and forced immunizations begin. Now here's where things get a little crazy, and this was one of the more difficult things to read when it came across this research. We're talking about a community living in abject poverty with people who were enslaved 17 years prior. White doctors and white people are coming in their community and inoculating them with smallpox. For the educated, they understand how and why vaccines work, but for most of Atlanta's slums, there is a deep mistrust and misunderstanding. So what is happening is that some people are running and hiding. There are reports of men being found hiding in closets or small rooms, and the police would pry them out, hold down their arms and legs, and force vaccinate them. And there's an entire article in the Constitution talking about this, and it's telling us that some Black people believe this isn't smallpox, they think it's just the measles, and that white people are giving them this smallpox disease through this vaccine in a master plan to eradicate their race. And let's be honest here, the only reason that white Atlanta is force vaccinating or even worrying about what's happening in a black slum is because smallpox contagious nature is a real threat. This is really the first time that both um, upper class or upper middle class white and black Atlantans work together because they understand that it doesn't matter where you live. If one person has smallpox, they can pass it to almost everyone else. Keeping every Atlantan free of this disease would in turn benefit all of Atlanta. By the end of April, there have only been two deaths from smallpox, and the city continues to monitor any activity. You see it pop up in neighboring towns, and then in April, someone at the Willingham House is diagnosed. In May, 10 new cases are reported, which is the most we've seen since the first outbreak. All of the afflicted at this time are poor and African-American. And after this, the city council meets and passes an ordinance that does several things. It A, says every citizen of Atlanta is required to be vaccinated. B, all vaccinations are free and offices are readily available to go get them. C, if Atlantans do not comply with this ordinance by May 20th, they can be removed by the Board of Health into a quarantine facility. D, anyone 15 years or older must be vaccinated or be risk being arrested. And then finally, if you're a parent or guardian of someone under 15, you can also face punishment or arrest for not vaccinating them. The disease would continue to pop in and out of Atlanta's history, but never again reaching these same heights from 1882. In 1977, the World Health Organization declares that smallpox has been eradicated, and today it only exists in high-security laboratories. Most people claim that it is here inside the CDC in Atlanta. Cholera is an infectious disease that causes watery diarrhea, which can lead to severe dehydration and even death. It appears in the U.S. around 1873 in the lower Mississippi Valley, and then it spreads over and up towards Nashville. The general rule of thumb in the 19th century is that cold weather destroys yellow fever, hot weather destroys scarlet fever, and cholera has no season. So in theory, Atlanta is not at an advantage over other cities based on its climate. 
It never really reached critical levels here, but that did not stop reporters from wondering what we would do if it did come. And one remedy came from Dr. Stephen T. Biggers, Atlanta pioneer citizen and founder of the Georgia Eclectic Medical College. Dr. Biggers had invented a medicine called, of course, Dr. Biggers' Great Southern Remedy. And he claimed that he lived in Nashville at the time of the cholera outbreak there in 1884, and he successfully used his product in treating patients. The tagline on his product was, quote, great for bowel complaints and teething children. So these are times that I'm very glad I'm alive in the present. Now let's go to scarlet fever. This is caused by bacteria, mainly in people that have strep throat, and its symptoms are a bright red rash that covers most of your body. So although it's not deadly, it's still very contagious and common among children, which is where you see it play out in Atlanta. For lots of these disease outbreaks, there's like a hundred newspaper articles just assuring the city that we did not have this disease. Rumors would spread like wildfire. And in 1881, the Constitution repeatedly states there is no epidemic in Atlanta. Yes, we've had three or four people die from scarlet fever, but they all lived next to each other. They were all neighbors. So just, you know, further kind of explaining to people like they, you know, spread germs to each other. By November of 1883, the city is getting more serious and the council passes an ordinance that fines parents who send their children to school when they may have a contagious or epidemic disease. It would be another decade, 1893 to be exact, when Atlantans fear the fever. At least five cases are discovered at the Crew Street School, which is between Washington Street and Capitol Avenue. Major Slayton, who is the school superintendent, removes the sick students and fumigates the school. But within a week, the entire school needs to be shut down for seven days. In 1900, the same thing happens at the Calhoun Street School, And it even happens at Agnes Scott College. There are a few reports here and there over the decades, but again, it's just not one of the big things in Atlanta's history. The same cannot be said for tuberculosis. Also called consumption or the Great White Plague, it reigned terror at the dawn of the 19th century. It had killed one out of every seven people that had ever been alive at that time. In 1882, it was discovered that TB was caused by bacteria and not genetics. But not only that, it was highly contagious and contained with good hygiene. Between 1904 and 1909, tuberculosis claimed the life of 1,426 Atlantans. The American Anti-Tuberculosis League forms, and Georgia is the first state in the union to recognize organization. The group visited Atlanta in 1905. Let me attempt to sum up what went on with tuberculosis. So after 1882, once we realized that this can be contained with knowledge about germs and sanitary conditions, while scientists are looking to develop a vaccine, there's a nationwide campaign to educate the public. And this is pre-internet. So groups like the Anti-Tuberculosis League form on a national level, but then cities have their own. So in Atlanta, we had the Atlanta Sanitary and Tubercular Prevention Society, which would actually meet in the Carnegie Library from episode 48. Um, but this is the first time that many white Southerners are pulling back the curtain, so to speak, on the living conditions of the poor and specifically the black poor. 
Middle and upper middle class Atlantans from both races are horrified at the state of affairs in slums around the city. Atlanta leadership tries to attract a tuberculosis hospital, but it loses it out to Alabama. The state of Georgia gets one in like the northeast part of the state, but the city keeps insisting that we need our own. So the method for spreading information about preventing TB is done by traveling exhibits or visiting doctors. There's even a time where the president of the United States announces, I think they called it Consumption Sunday, where each church, regardless of faith, agrees to discuss the disease and its prevention in the pulpit that day. We're talking about a time where people believe that there was such a thing as night air, like the air at night was different than the air during the day. And so there was just a lot of misinformation that needed to be corrected. Groups like the Atlanta Anti-Tuberculosis and Visiting Nurses Association formed, and they were led by people like Nellie Peters Black from episode 27. There was an outrage from white communities also at the time because their washerwomen, their servants, their laborers, Um, were all black and they were like, oh my gosh, you know, they're bringing consumption into our homes. Again, not understanding that there's a huge difference in their living conditions. In 1909, the potential site for tuberculosis hospital was presented between Lakewood and Clark University. The representative from that neighborhood just about lost his mind and he protested to the city council that Lakewood is better served as a public park and not a place to hold the sick. By the following year, the council has appropriated $10,000 for the hospital, and the Fulton County Board has promised $15,000. But the issue is they still couldn't find a location. Doctors wanted something along a streetcar line with enough space for two camps, one for whites, one for blacks, set apart a large distance. And just like today, nobody wants something undesirable in their neighborhood. So every neighborhood location in Atlanta that they would find, somebody would come and put an injunction or protest. Finally, Battle Hill is chosen. 35 acres, a 10-minute walk from the Westview streetcar line. They had well-known architect W.T. Downing design an administrative building that would have two wards, one for white men, one for white women, and then a smaller building for black patients. And guess who graded the land? Convict laborers. Initially named the Atlanta and Fulton County Tuberculosis Sanitarium, when it opened in 1911, it was simply called Battle Hill Sanatorium. Today, this area is the Westview neighborhood. Georgia had a main state sanatorium open for white residents in 1911, but a facility for black residents was not available until 1927 when the white patients got a new facility and gave their old building to black patients. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's history with yellow fever, smallpox, cholera, scarlet fever, and tuberculosis. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.